0: This Word on Fire Minute is brought to you by Advantage Futures. As Catholics, we must take advantage of new technology to spread the faith. WordOnFire.org is on the front lines, featuring the work of one of the Church's best messengers, Father Robert Barron. At WordOnFire.org, you'll find inspirational podcasts, videos, audio sermons, books, DVDs, and The Catholicism Project. It is one of the most ambitious efforts ever to promote the Catholic faith to the world. Catholicism is Father Barron's global documentary series, filmed in high definition and now in production for TV and DVD. Father Barron's series will illustrate the beauty and depth of the church and explain the Catholic faith on our own terms. It will be an exciting new way for families, parishes, and schools to teach Catholicism. Preview the production, join our email list, and contribute to the Catholicism Project at wordonfire.org. Become part of the story today.
1: so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present
2: Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, as Lent comes to its climax, the Church gives us an extraordinarily important text for our meditation. A text that's very easy to remember. It's Jeremiah 31, 31. And here it is. It's from our first reading. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. And can I suggest to you to go home and highlight that passage, memorize it, teach it to your kids, put it up on the refrigerator, put it on your computer uh, screen, That is a central passage in the Bible. We call that text to mind every time we attend Mass. Because Jesus called it to mind on the night before he died. When he took a cup filled with wine and he said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. What he was saying, and none of his first century Jewish audience would have missed it, was that the covenant predicted by Jeremiah long before was coming true. Ah, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will make a new covenant. Jesus is saying those days have come. Those days have come because now there's a new covenant in my blood. Now we know throughout the Old Testament God made a series of covenants with his people. With Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, God sealed these covenants, berith in the Hebrew. What are they? Not contracts, but something like pledges of mutual love, more like a wedding vow. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the basic form of the Israelite covenant. Not an exchange of goods, as Scott Hahn says, but an exchange of persons. I'm yours and you are mine. That's a covenant. Now, at the heart of these covenants, at least from the human side, was the law. What I mean is God made a series of demands on his people. If you are to be a member of my family if I'm really your God and you're really my people, then you have to behave in a certain way. There has to be a conformity now of your life with the divine life. So think of the requirement of circumcision given to Abraham. Think of the elaborate ritual and moral laws given to Moses. Think of the sacrifices of the temple associated with the covenant of David. In all these ways, God is trying to bring his people back online. Now, this is not all that unusual. This sort of thing obtains, whenever we join a a club or an organization or a society or become a member of a family, there are certain actions we are expected to perform, others that we are expected to avoid. That's what it means to be a member of this family or society or culture. Or if we join the society, I'll put that in quotes, the society of people who play golf or play the guitar or the violin There are certain laws that govern those excellences, certain things you should do, things you shouldn't do. Anyone that's gone on a golf course with a serious golfer knows there's all kinds of laws and etiquette associated with the playing of golf. Now, the problem was, and we see it all through the Bible, is that Israel didn't live up to the law. Or to put it differently, they saw the laws of the covenant as kind of extrinsic to them. They read them as terrible demands, hard to live up to. They seemed arbitrary, artificially imposed. Think for a second of the drills you were compelled to do when you were learning a sport or a musical instrument. I remember when I learned basketball, the coach put us through a series of drills that seemed utterly unrelated to the game. But see, he was placing the moves of the game in our bodies. And then later on, when it came time to play, we had these moves. But see, while we were doing it, those drills seemed just sort of meaningless, and the coach seemed to be imposing them on us rather arbitrarily. That's why kids just learning a game often complain about them. Or think of a music teacher leading his piano student or violin student through basic moves and drills. Well, it doesn't sound like you're playing Mozart. Well, you're not. You're just placing the moves of those instruments in your body. You know, it's funny. I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and I watched um, the Golf Channel. And there was this program. I don't know if you know about uh, the worst golf swing in the world. It belongs to Charles Barkley, who was a great basketball player. And he's played golf for many years. He loves golf. But he has this famously dysfunctional swing. It's just comical to watch. Well, he's been working recently with Hank Haney, who's the greatest golf teacher in the world. He's Tiger Woods' golf uh, instructor. Well, the show was very entertaining. It was Hank Haney trying to bring Charles Barkley back online. But what you saw in the show, and it's typical, is that Barkley wasn't getting an immediate um, payoff. He was going through all these painful drills. In fact, Haney had him hit like 1,000 golf balls in a row following this um particular pattern, and he just wasn't seeing the payoff. And so he balked and complained. It all seemed cumbersome and counterintuitive. Well, see, so it went with Israel and the laws that God gave them. That's just the story of the Old Testament. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah, our first reading. Jeremiah was the Hank Haney of ancient Israel. What I mean is, Jeremiah was a pretty tough taskmaster. Demanding that the people come back to the the requirements of the ancient covenants, he was a pretty tough person. There wasn't anything namby-pamby about Jeremiah. Believe me, take a look at, at his book, and you 'll know what I mean and yet and yet, we find this one great sunburst within his mostly gloomy book, and it's this passage jeremiah thirty one thirty one what's he predicting? One day the Lord would write His law on the hearts of His people. Listen, so that they would effortlessly fulfill the demands of the Lord. They would no longer see the law as something extrinsic to them, a series of drills they have to endure. No, they would have so internalized His demands that they would now fulfill them effortlessly much as a skilled athlete has internalized the drills that his coach put him through and is now able joyfully to play his game. Israel would become like a star violinist or a star golfer, but transposed now into the moral and spiritual order. That's what he means when he says the days are coming when the Lord will write his law upon your heart. Now, this is precisely what Jesus announces as he speaks the words over the cup at the Last Supper. When he says, this is the cup of my blood, of the new and everlasting covenant. It's happening. God is right now, he's saying, changing you, placing his law in your heart. Now, mind you, mind you, It is the cup of his blood. Which is to say the cup of his life. Who is Jesus? As I've said to you a thousand times already, he's not just one more prophet like Jeremiah or Isaiah. Not one more great figure like Moses or David. Not one more teacher. He is instead The law made flesh. When St. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, what he was saying was, he is the Torah. He's the law, the logos, the mind, the reason of God, now made flesh. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said over and over again, you've heard it said, But I say, well, you heard it said in the Torah. That's what he's implying. He is the Lord of the Torah because he is the Torah made flesh. Now, what's the implication? Therefore, when we take him into our bodies and our souls, we become conformed to the Torah. You see now what's going on? We Eat and drink the law which had formerly existed only on stone or on the printed page or in the words of the prophets. Now, the law is indeed written in our hearts because in the Eucharist we take that law into our hearts. We eat and drink the law so that it becomes bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. The Church Father said it over and over again. The Eucharist Christifies us, and it thereby deifies us. It makes us participants in the divine life. That's why Thomas Aquinas referred to the sacraments as the sacraments of the new law. You see what he's saying? Baptism, confirmation, marriage, all of them, extreme unction, all of them, are ways of being conformed to Christ's life. They're the new law, but now they are placed within us. And Aquinas said, the greatest of these sacraments of the new law is the Eucharist. Why? Because in the other sacraments, the power of Christ is available. But in the Eucharist, he says, Ipse Christus, Christ himself is present. Remember, Christians, what you are doing. Remember when you consume the body and blood of Jesus, what you are doing. You are not just enacting an old ritual. Not just remembering some great figure. No, no, no. Nothing as banal as that. Nothing as ordinary as that. You are consuming, you're eating and drinking the Torah made flesh, so that this law is now written in your heart. The new and everlasting covenant. See, what could go beyond this one? What covenant could be greater than this? And every time you consume the Eucharist, you are confirming this covenant. Now do you see why Vatican II called the liturgy the source? and the summit of the Christian life. With the Eucharist in us, we become Christ, and thereby the law is planted in us. And now, spiritually, if we are a Eucharisticized people, we become like an expert violinist playing with with abandon and joy. We become like a skilled basketball player all the laws of basketball now in our very flesh. And so it goes in the spiritual order when we come forward to that cup of the new and everlasting covenant. And when we consume it and now begin to live according to Christ's own life. Remember that, friends, remember that. When you approach the Eucharist next time, remember what it means. And sometime today, take out the Bible, look up Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Let that word sink into your heart. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that
1: together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.